Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. In mid-2020, I had the happy privilege of chatting with rural fiction author Leonie Kelsall about her gorgeous book, The Farm at Pepertree Crossing. With its well-developed characters and strong sense of place, it was a book that offered humour and hope and a way of making sense of some of the tough issues often faced by our rural neighbours. So I guess it comes as no surprise to learn that this book went on to become a national bestseller. This year, Lee is back with her second rural fiction title, and it's another winner, a warm and wonderful story filled with lovable yet flawed characters, along with a large dose of country charm. I had the pleasure of curling up with this book over the past weekend. It's a must read for lovers of Australian contemporary fiction, a perfect balance of romance, drama, and an exploration of deeper themes that speak to modern audiences. The perfect antidote to lockdown blues, I have to say. The book is called The Wattle Seed Inn, and I'm excited to welcome Lee back to the podcast today to chat about it. Hi, Lee. Hi, Claudine. Thank you for that lovely intro. Oh, you're so welcome. So this book takes off a few years after the events of the farm at Pepper Tree Crossing and is set in roughly the same area, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's um, All of my books are set in a fictional area, a town I developed called Settlers Bridge. And I have to say, I was quite amused the other day. A reader bailed me up at the library and she said, oh, I'm familiar with the Murraylands. I went, okay, this could go badly. And she said, no, no, I've almost worked out where Settlers Bridge is. I went, "Um, you do understand it's a fictional town, don't you? It doesn't actually exist. I'd have to extend the river by about 30 kilometres to make it actually exist. And she was was a little put out by that because she was sure that she had honed in on where this secret settlement was. Oh, bless her. (laughs) Tell me, Lee, what inspired the events of this book? This one was uh, really interesting the way it came about, all of my books sort of pop up differently. My youngest daughter, Taylor, has a lot to do with most of them, not as much as she'd have you believe, mind you. She's not in that. (laughs) She's nowhere near, so I can talk about her now. Um, But she always, she's my sounding board and we brainstorm a lot together. But the way this book came around was we were actually um, on tour for the farm at Pepper Tree Crossing and we're heading out towards the Riverland in South Australia and we drove through this tiny town that was about four houses and right at the end of the town was this big old two-storey pub, very dilapidated, sign scrawled across the front saying, private dwelling, don't enter. We drove past and we sort of drove into the scrub just beyond and we'd only made it a few metres when we looked at each other and went, there's a story there. Mm. And we doubled back, went part in front of the pub and taking photos on our phone and down the side of it, taking photos, out the back, taking photos, got back in the car. And the next 100 kilometres, we spent just brainstorming what the story could be that this pub was hiding to have the poor building that, you know, obviously would have had dozens of people in it in its heyday. And it's just dilapidated and empty and forlorn. So we wanted to know what was behind it. And that became the story of the book. Can you tell us more about the story? Yeah, the Wattle Seed End. Those who've read their farm at Pepper Tree Crossing will know that it was all from one point of view, the protagonist, 
Veronica, the Wattle Seed Inn is different in that it follows three intertwining stories about a small riverside country town and this abandoned pub that's desperately in need of renovations. The principal character is Gabrielle Moreau, and she's um, a very well-to-do businesswoman in Adelaide. But when her business partner accuses her of lacking career passion, she decides that she's going to abandon her very comfortable life in Adelaide and take over this pub in this tiny, tiny little town on the Murray River and reinvent the pub to prove that she has passion or to prove more in her mind that she has ability and doesn't need passion. The second character is Hayden, who is a stonemason in the town of Settlers Bridge and he's a popular guy and had everything going for him until 18 months ago something happened that has uh, made his life take a turn for the worse and made him very insular and introverted. And the third character is Ilza, who was born at the Waraldi pub and she's lived there her entire life and she is... She's struggling against the fact that she's terrified that she's beginning to lose her memories, but she's even more scared of allowing the memories. So the, the story is the three of them coming together and how their stories actually relate to each other and intertwine. And all up the story, I'd say it's a story of endings and beginnings, and it's about letting go of guilt but holding on to your grief because grief is where your memories live. I just loved it and I loved all three characters. But I have to say that I especially loved Gabrielle. She's someone who, despite having enjoyed professional success, as you mentioned, is looking for more than just financial gain. She's looking for personal fulfilment and is not afraid to go out of her comfort zone to find it. I wondered, Lee, if she shared some character traits with you in this regard as her creator. I mean, you too have changed courses in your life in order to pursue your writing career, haven't you? Oh, now you've said you like her. I really want to relate her to myself. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me think really quick. Um, yeah, I've changed my career a lot of times. I've been a blacksmith in a working farm museum. I've worked in schools where I had a very fancy title, but I didn't really do anything important, but gosh, it was a nice title. I have worked in the public service. I'm a professional counsellor as well. And now I'm doing the author business as well. But I think it's, I think you need, unless you are incredibly fulfilled by your career, I think you should keep changing things up, you know, keep reinventing yourself. I believe in moving houses a lot until the last few years I've moved every 18 months or so. Um, I'm always hungry for new experiences and Gabrielle needed to move outside of her comfort zone to discover that part of her personality. She didn't suspect it in herself. She thought she was happy where she was and she only discovered by challenging herself that there was more to life. So, I mean, I guess, you know, drawing on your experience as a professional counsellor, do you think that that's common these days that people don't necessarily see their initial career choices as being lifelong but rather more like a stepping stone? I wonder if it's generational. My parents' generation, my parents excluded because they upped and moved from the UK and started all over again and moved several times since but I think a lot of people were very focused on you choose your trade and this is what you do for life. I think probably my older kids who are in their 30s are more restless and find it harder to settle to doing just the one thing. My daughter's a teacher, but you know, she'll move around schools. My son I describe as a bit of a gypsy because he always works, but then he'll get a stash of money and 
take off for months. Uh, one stage he went to Japan and I knew he was going and I knew he didn't really like it. He'd called me and then I knew he was home. And then my youngest daughter said, oh, Chris is in Japan. I said, no, he's not. I know everything. I'm his mother. He's home. She goes, no, he's in Japan again. And he'd come home for literally four days and then gone back because he's just restless and looking for things to do all the time. So I think maybe kids in their 30s are finding it very hard to settle and are looking for ways to reinvent themselves and perhaps have a better perspective in that why should we choose just one thing and settle for it? Why should we not constantly be seeking to advance ourselves why shouldn't we be looking for adventure all the time yeah I have to say I love that philosophy and if I was 20 years younger I think I'd be exactly the same no don't let that tie you down go no I'm 20 years old and now I have the experience and the know-how and I'm going now both Gabrielle and, and Hayden are carrying some hefty emotional and psychological burdens throughout this story both suffering post-traumatic stress from different events in their respective mm -hmm. pasts the thing I found remarkable and which I didn't know about before was that people with PTSD or anxiety can benefit from having an assistance animal. Mm. Um, I've certainly heard about equine therapy before, but never an assistance animal for people with such conditions. Can you tell me a little bit more about this and how this factored into Hayden's story? Anybody who has pets, I think, realises how valuable an animal can be. It gives the person who is suffering from PTSD somewhere to focus their attention. But it also gives feedback that's very non-judgmental. For example, in the story, Hayden has an assistance dog and the role of his dog is to recognise when Hayden is going to suffer a PTSD occurrence and Hayden has certain tells, like he will start scratching at his legs just a, a repetitive motion which is quite common he will tense up and the dog will recognize this and just distract him by physically pushing its head into his hand so there's a physical distraction there mm. but there's also the fact that the dog provides trigger the dog's name is provides Hayden with a focus he is responsible for that animal he has to care for himself so that he is able to care for that animal and that's that's another very important component of healing is not just allowing the person to be in a position where they can let it all go they've, they've still got to take responsibility for something else because that helps them take responsibility for themselves yeah look I have to say I just I found this thread of the story really remarkable how common are therapy or assistance animals for people with this kind of condition? I couldn't give you figures on it. I was very aware of it and I was really surprised to find that other people weren't, but that's probably because of my professional work as well. Quite often when you see dogs out, you know, with their harness or their jacket on, everybody assumes that they're either hearing dogs or blind dogs. Mm. And that's not necessarily the fact at all. You know, we, we all just have this assumption because they are more common. And because we've become accustomed to them over the years. But yeah, assistance animals are also increasingly common. I know that they're used for veterans quite a lot. So yeah. It's yeah, a very well-known policy is to provide them with an assistance dog. Just fascinating, as I said. And obviously that's a misconception that Gabrielle suffered as well. Mm. I mean, she assumed that Hayden had some kind of vision or hearing impairment when she yes. was 
came across them. So yeah, I was <laughs> equally ignorant, I have to say. You know, I just love the fact that I can learn something new from reading a beautiful book like yours. Absolutely wonderful. The thing that I found quite fascinating also in this story was the extent to which you explore the theme of inner beauty versus physical beauty. Both Hayden and Gabriel were from my reading, quite objectively attractive people, but both suffered great angst about what they perceived as their physical flaws. They, they both viewed themselves as, as unlovable, uh, particularly if they revealed their scars. So I wanted to ask you, is that something you wanted to consciously explore and why? It wasn't a you know, pre-organised plan of this is what's going to happen. It was just mm-hmm. the way the book organically came about. And again, it goes back to counselling. I deal with people who have a lot of self-esteem and body issues and people find it very easy to understand. If your floor is visible, People go, oh, yes, you poor thing, that must be hard. But a lot of people don't understand that you can have hidden flaws or even um, just in your own mind something wrong with you that is every bit as debilitating as having a physically obvious flaw. So I wanted to go into the fact that not all of our scars are visible. Most people have scars and they're not all visible. Interestingly, both of them had the capacity to look beyond the other person's flaw, but not their own. And I wondered if this was something that you thought was common to modern society, something which is fueled by social media and marketing and things like that? I think we spend so long airbrushing our own photos that we have an expectation of ourselves that we need to look perfect at all times. But then when we look at somebody else, we're far more realistic about them and also when you're looking at somebody else you're taking in the whole person in Gabrielle and Hayden's examples they had already come to know each other as people before physical scars were revealed so they had come to love the person in their entirety and the physical scars were just a part of them it's just Mm. a form it's just a body no matter how good you look at some stage you are going to get old and wrinkly if you're lucky So we are all going to have scars and blemishes and we really need to learn to look beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it also goes to this whole idea that when you love somebody, you love all of them. It's Mm. not just that you love their face or their body at a particular Mm. stage of your life. You come to love the person in their entirety and that scars or physical imperfections are, you know, make us who we are. Absolutely, absolutely. We we have to appreciate the other person, warts and all. Hayden doesn't have warts though. Just you know, for the record, <laughs> putting it out there. <laughs> I didn't think that he did. <laughs> Lee, you've described yourself as a country girl at heart, and this book, much like the farm at Pepper Tree Crossing, is filled with what I described as country charm and those values that seem harder to come by in big city living. It's something that Gabrielle finds difficult to comprehend at first, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is probably almost unimaginable for somebody who's always lived in the city to truly realise what a country town is like, how everybody is in everybody else's business. And that can be massively detrimental, as one of the side characters Shana will make mention of. But it also can be very rewarding and very secure. But I don't think... I've lived in both the city and the country and now I'm kind of a hybrid between the two and I honestly don't believe that people in the country have any, in the city rather, have any real concept of what it is like to live in the country. And living in the country is very different to taking a holiday in the country as well, just in that when you take a holiday anywhere, you see the best of it. You know, you don't, you don't see 
the the downside of being in a small society that might be very judgmental, as in the case of Shana and the secondary character. Her fear is that the town will be judgmental of her life choices because it is a small, closed community. Now, if you go on a holiday from the city to the country, you take your city preconceptions with you and you assume, I don't want to give away too much of the story here, you see, you assume that is what is accepted, widely accepted in the city will also be accepted in the country and that is not necessarily the case. But, you know, on the flip side, uh, if I had to choose between city and country, I would definitely choose country for the the sense of community. Well, as I said to you before we started recording, it just makes me want to pack <laughs> up and go and live out in the country somewhere. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so like many authors that I speak to on this podcast, Lee, you're an intelligent, educated woman with a professional background who writes multidimensional books with strong romantic themes and elements, amongst many other things. I wanted to ask you, do you feel that there are negative connotations associated with romance writing that are peculiar to women writers? Yeah, very sadly, that is absolutely the case. If your book is tagged romance, you are automatically only given a portion of the market. Now, that might be a large portion statistically, but it's almost uh, denigrated if you if you say, I write romances, oh, yeah, okay, bodice ripping, you know, naked mm. men on the covers. Now, fair disclosure, under my pen name, I do have naked men on the covers of the books. <laughs> That's a choice. But then when you write anything else, like I like to think the farm at Pepper Tree Crossing and the Wattle Seed Inn have some deeper themes, they have some stuff to get you thinking, they have some meaning and message to them. But because they're called rural romance, there are certain readers who will never pick them up mm. because they're called romance. And I, I don't think there's any way around that unless we change the title to rural fiction and change the look of the books. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be a way out of the, oh, you write romance kind of category. It's a shame, I think, because books mm. like yours and many others that I can think of, you know, authors that I've spoken to on this podcast, their books, as you say, have many deeper themes and themes that will, I think, appeal to the general public in reality, yep. you know. So it's such a shame that people take that kind of view of these beautiful books. It is. And and you said, you know, is it different for female writers? I think you're very right. Um, I think if a man had produced either of my two books and sent them to the publisher, they would have gone out as rural fiction and wouldn't have had a picture of a person on the front, would have had a picture of a farm and would have had wider acceptance. Now, wider acceptance doesn't necessarily mean wider sales, though, because he then would miss out on the romance readers side of the market. So it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, but it would be really nice to be more generalised and, you know, just have people feel that they could pick up the book. I get so many male readers in libraries, it's hilarious, the librarians and visitors who go, I never would have picked up this book, but because you were coming, I thought I better, and, oh, it's really good and it's really got dark bits and I really enjoyed it, but I wouldn't call it rural romance. Mm-mm-mm, no. <laughs> well, there's a case in point, really. There's a case for just calling it rural fiction. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say to someone who might be dismissive of romance writing? Hey, romance writers make the big bucks. As far as big bucks go, (laughs) there aren't any real big bucks in this industry, but romance is one of the most hotly sought after genres. It's one of the biggest sellers. The fact is 
most books will have a romantic component to them. I like reading Wilbur Smith. He's one of my favourite authors. There's always a romance in Wilbur Smith. There might be lots of gore and intrigue and everything else. There is always a romance. The majority of books will have some kind of romantic thread running through them. Therefore, people who say, I don't read romance, chances are you actually are reading romance. So if the Waraldi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Waraldi Hotel that Gabrielle buys based on a real-life place? Yeah, it's based on the Wambi Hotel, the little town that we drove past. But the external look was originally the same as that hotel. Then when we were working on the cover art, we couldn't get the picture right for it. So I built on a wing to the book in the story to match the cover art. So the cover of the book is actually the back wing of the Waraldi Inn, which uh, is where the kitchen is housed a brand new kitchen in a barn style building so it's you know a little bit of I saw this building and a little bit of I imagined this well I do love the stone the dry stone wall on the cover of the book which is a little nod to Hayden's stone masonry skills it is Hayden built that <laughs> I love it I love it Lee how many wattle seed cakes did you make while researching or writing this book have you looked at the price of wattle seed <laughs> I usually bake everything that is in any of my books and it accounts for a lot of kilos but the wattle seed cakes are made just one because it is phenomenally expensive and you can't really taste it but that said one of the library tours I did the other week gave me some wattle seed oil lemon infused wattle seed oil it's divine I absolutely love it I wouldn't put it in a wattle seed cake but you know it tastes really good so no I didn't make many wattle seed cakes I've did other baking instead okay. and went oh this is a wattle seed cake sans <laughs> wattle seed I did strangely look up how much it was going to cost me to buy wattle seed yeah. it's crazy <laughs> isn't it that's hilarious yeah I felt strangely inspired to make one after reading <laughs> <laughs> and then looked up the price and felt strangely uninspired so suffice it to say that there is a little bit of woo-woo in this book and I always love me a bit of magic <laughs> and mystery in my reading an interesting little side plot to this story which leads me to ask do you believe in ghosts or spirits I do believe in ghosts because I grew up with a ghost on the family farm yeah woo-woo is the is actually the phrase that my editor used about one of my other books you went oh the end of that's really woo-woo isn't it yeah the farm I grew up on there's only ever been two families living the farm mine obviously, and the Hartman family who established the farm, um, you know, literally carved it out from the trees. And Ben Hartman was tragically killed when he was only 42 years old. He walked down the farmyard to check on his livestock and a sheet of tin came off the roof and killed him. And, yeah, so it's horrible. But his wife, this is a fascinating story in itself, his wife, who was in, only in her 30s, stayed on the farm because she had a baby son and the only way she could keep the farm for him was if she stayed there and did not marry until he was 21 years old. So she stayed there farming, had had help come in. So she stayed there for the next 15 years, keeping it for her son, Glenn. Then my family had moved into it. So Glenn took over the farm. He had it for a few years. And then the land was compulsorily acquired by the government because they were going to build this satellite city called Monato. Never happened. Right. My family moved into the farm and we always had occurrences like uh, there were swinging doors in the middle of the house. They would just open, no windows open or anything. They would open and they would shut. Doors would open and close. We were always aware of a presence. Um, A couple of times somebody spoke to my dad when he was working down in the sheds, but there was nobody there. We'd always hear an old 
uh, the, the driveway's a kilometre long. You're very isolated. You'd hear a car coming up the driveway and slowly past the sheds, changing gears, never arrived, never, ever arrived. So we sort of always just, mum and dad didn't tell us about the guy who died. My brother and I accepted there was a ghost and it was just, you know, her thing that was fine. And then a few years ago, the roof of the shed that had blown off and killed Ben was re-roofed and everything stopped. No more cars, no more doors opening, no more voices in the sheds, which is actually quite sad because Ben was always a really nice presence, but it's also a case of, well, now he's gone to rest. You know, he obviously needed that roof to be fixed. So the short answer was, yes, I believe in ghosts. <laughs> what a fascinating story. And I oh, look, I asked this question because I've had some ghostly encounters myself. And so it always really interests me to hear about people's reasons for including such storylines in their books. I say this with a little bit of trepidation because I obviously don't want to give away any plot spoilers. And so I think we'll just kind of leave that discussion there. I don't think we can really yeah. talk about anything more without... <laughs> without giving that away. Yeah, there's quite a bit of this book that's tricky that you're sort of hedging around questions. What would you like most for readers to take away from this beautiful book? I really want people to accept love for what it is. You know, love comes in many forms, whether your love is for an animal or a person or somebody of the same sex, somebody of a different sex. I just want people to accept that love should be permitted in whatever form it takes. Love is never going to hurt anyone so allow it. Are you working on something else at the moment, Lee? Yes, I've got the edits for the Dandelion Cottage are due in this month. They're coming back to me from Alan and I'm going to have a look how much red pen is in there. <laughs> and I'm writing book four in the Settlers Bridge series. Well, I'm not really writing it. I'm staring at the screen and swearing a lot about book four. Lee, given your experiences with both traditional and self-published titles, I wondered if you had three top tips that you would offer aspiring writers who listen to this podcast. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you've got a book in you, write your book, try and get it published. Don't hinge everything on trying to get it published. You can always take it indie. You can always publish that book if you want to publish it. If you're a true writer, it's not so much about how many readers you have as getting the words down on the page and then seeing them in a printed format. So pursue your dream whatever it costs or whatever it takes rather, not whatever it costs. And that leads me to the second point is manage your expectations. Now, this comes from the counselling side. People, this, this will be an unpopular opinion. People are very fond of saying, just keep writing your book, just keep putting it out there, you will get published. No, that's not true. I'm really sorry. I really wish it was true, but it's not true. The number of people who are lucky enough and it is luck it's nothing, it's very little to do with ability. There are thousands of writers out there who are so much better than me, but they weren't lucky enough to be to have their chapter in with the right publisher on the right day of the right month, you know, so that's where luck comes into play. So manage your expectations. Don't go along believing, yes, I've just got to keep doing it and I will get published Look for that other route for yourself. Give yourself a time limit. Say, yes, I will keep doing this. I will keep submitting it for this long. When it gets to this date, if I still love that book, then I will self-publish or do or go to a vanity publisher or whatever you want to do, but don't hinge everything on just this elusive publishing deal, which may not happen. It's really, really bad for your mental health. Um, I speak to so many writers who are suffering from depression 
because they they just feel like, you know, I'm doing the right things, but I'm still not getting there. I mean, my case in point, I'm, I know I look like I'm 20 <coughs> or 30 on a bad day. I'm not. I've been writing for 35 years and I only started publishing books a couple of years ago. It's a very long process. So, you know, don't, don't just jump in thinking, yes, I'll keep doing it. There will always be those standouts. I've got a friend who uh, pitched her book for three or four months and she's very young. She's like 21 and complained about how hard it was to get a publishing deal. Has multiple publishing deals at, you know, the ripe old age of 24, 25, mm. but that's, that's not the norm, so don't believe that it is. The other third piece of advice was hmm, don't listen to people like me who give really long-winded advice. Just go and do what you want. Okay, so if listeners wanted to connect with you, how can they do that? You can try my website, www leonikelsall.com see I can't actually say my own name that's not how you say it but more likely you'll find me on Facebook because that's where I spend all of my time procrastinating so I'm there all day every day <laughs> oh, that makes two of us <laughs> <laughs> Lee I wanted to say congratulations again on another beautiful read in the Wattle Seed Inn I wish you much success with that lovely lady thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books Thank you so much, Claudine. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>